You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Father, we are thankful to be in your house on your day with your people under your word before your throne with your special presence. And we do come to ask that you would come and grant your Holy Spirit to attend our labors to uh, bless us. We come to acknowledge that a man can receive nothing except to be given him from God. We come to pray with the psalmist, send forth your light and your truth, let them lead us, let them lead us to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. So we commit our hope, our help, all of these things we find in you. And we ask for your mercy and grace and your blessing upon the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn to your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And we'll be reading there the text for this morning, verses 1 to 11. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Happy New Year. (laughs) It's ironic, isn't it? To say Happy New Year after reading a passage like this. If you take this passage seriously, there seems to be nothing, nothing really to be happy about. The last thing this passage suggests is Happy New Year. So why in the world am I preaching on it for a New Year's sermon? This passage taken at face value is not really very encouraging. It really does not suggest the sentiment, Happy New Year. Though it is ironic, my Happy New Year is also intentional. I want to speak to you this morning on how to have a Happy New Year. I actually think my text really tells us how not to have a happy new year, but in so doing, I think it reveals how to 
have a very happy new year. My hope is, my purpose is, not to discourage you, but to help you have the very happiest new year possible, the very happiest new year that you've ever had. I hope by studying this text, which teaches us how not to have a happy new year, all of us will learn how to have the happiest new year of our lives. So we're going to study this text under four headings. The preacher, the pronouncement, the problem, and then the proclamation. Consider, first of all, the preacher. The first part of our passage introduces the one who will teach us about how to have a happy new year. You see, there, you see it there in verse 1 again, where we read, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. I want you to consider our teacher in several ways under this first heading. Consider his position. He is the speaker or preacher or even perhaps the assembler. The author of Ecclesiastes, and by the way, Ecclesiastes is derived from the idea of this Hebrew word, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes describes himself as the preacher. The Hebrew word is used only in Ecclesiastes and is used in this book seven times. It can also be translated as speaker. The word derives from the word which is often used to describe the official assembly of Israel as the church of Yahweh. Some even translate this word, as I said, as the assembler because of this a reference to the assembly of Israel. And taken this way, it still refers to one who gathers God's church and then speaks in that assembly, speaks in the assembly of Israel. And thus this word refers to the one who speaks in the assembly or church of Israel and thus means, as it is translated, the preacher. He is the one with a message for the assembly of Israel. Consider in the second place his person. His person. He is Solomon the king. The preacher claims to be the son of David who was king in Jerusalem. We should accept this claim and recognize that this preacher was the wisest of the sons of Israel, King Solomon. The speaker is the main author of that other biblical book which we call the Proverbs, and which speaks of the wisdom of God for this life. He's not only a preacher, but as every preacher should be, a wise man. And later in the book we are told, Ecclesiastes 12.9, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many Proverbs. But consider in the third place his power or his sovereignty or supremacy. When you read the accounts of the Old Testament about the reign of Solomon, you learn not only that he was a king and reigned with great power and authority, but what is perhaps a little more unusual, he reigned with great power and authority, which was mostly unchallenged or little challenged during his reign. The preacher also had the power, uh, this preacher, this sovereign, this king, then had the power 
to do pretty much everything he wanted to do. Other men might have been limited in the power to do what they wanted. He was not. And that is important because of the next thing that is said about him. And that is, we learn about his pursuit. Like everyone, Solomon wanted to be happy. Unlike other men, he had the power, authority, to make the pursuit of happiness a full-time occupation. Beginning in chapter 1 and verse 13, and all the way through most of of chapter 2, Solomon details all the things he did to find happiness in the world. Just look at the first, uh, uh, the beginning text there. In verse 13, he says, And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task, this is his conclusion after doing that, which God has given to the sons of men. And he goes on to talk about how he, uh, he did all sorts of things in his pursuit of happiness in his pursuit of fulfillment. Uh, He says, I set my mind, verse 17, to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And uh, he talks about that. He then says that he set his mind to know wisdom and happiness and fulfillment by pleasure. Ecclesiastes 2.1, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. And he says, that's fertility. He said, of laughter, what does it accomplish? And then he talks, uh, talks about uh, the fact that he did drugs, or at least the drugs of the time, in order to find, like the hippies did, some sort of wisdom, happiness, and fulfillment in drug taking. Look at verse 3. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven. The few years of their lives. Verse 4, and then he does something else. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself in which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Uh, I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. We're told elsewhere, 700 concubines and 300 wives. That I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in, in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for my labor. Thus I considered, here's the conclusion, all my activities, which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity, and striving after a wind, and there was no profit under the sun. That is his conclusion from his pursuit of happiness. But then we come to his possession, wisdom. His possession. Solomon was also excelled in this respect also. He was unexcelled in this respect. He had the intelligence and practical insight to find out how to be happy 
if anyone could. If anyone had the wisdom to do it, he was the man. If anyone could discover the secret to happiness and fulfillment, he could do it because he was the wisest of men. When the Lord appeared to him at the beginning of his reign over Israel and asked him for any gift he wanted, Solomon asked for wisdom. Turn your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. And I want to read this passage. Here, I want to read verses 5 to 10. First Kings chapter 3, 3, verse 5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Wow. I want God to appear and ask you that. And what would you say? Well, here's what Solomon said. You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you, and you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, and God granted, as the remaining text says here, that request. He was given the wisdom he needed to rule this great people Israel in spite of his youth and what he calls his littleness. That was his possession, wisdom. He was given wisdom to a degree and to an extent that no other man of his day and probably few since him have ever had. But then notice his prosperity, his prosperity. Not only did Solomon have the wisdom and the power and the will to find out how to be happy and fulfill in this worry world, he had the money. He had the money. With the wisdom for which he asked God, God gave him an abundance of wealth possessed by no one else in his day. Talk about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and those other guys, but Solomon in his day was the richest man in the world. 1 Kings 3, 11 to 13, if you're still there. God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall like one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. So he had the money. He had the wisdom, he had the power, and he had the money to do anything he wanted. And what is the conclusion? If anyone should be able to tell us how to be happy, how to have a happy life, how to be fulfilled in our life, it should be this man. If anyone could discover how to be happy, if anyone could tell us how to have a happy new year, it is this man. 
this Solomon. But what does this wise, this wisest, richest, and most powerful of men say? Well, consider in the second place the pronouncement, verse 2. He says in Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 2, look at it again if you're not there. Ecclesiastes 11 and, uh, I'm sorry, 1 and verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now when he uses the term vanity, you carpenters out there, he's not talking about something you put in the bathroom. (laughs) He's not. He's talking about Well, he's talking, as the Hebrew word means, about vapor, about breath. This word vanity refers literally to a puff of air. Job 7, 16, I waste away, I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. Psalm 39, 5, Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. But of course, the, the, the wise man, the preacher, does not mean for us to think of a literal breath or puff of air. He's using the word figuratively. He's using it as is often used in the Old Testament to speak of something that is insignificant, something meaningless, something empty, something purposeless. Thus this word is often used of idols, which are purposeless because they're not true gods. They're completely empty of significance and useless because there are no gods beside Yahweh. And and thus the verdict of the preacher is stunning. He says, of everything, and of all of life, and everything in the world, that it is insignificant, meaningless, empty, purposeless. Thus it's incapable of giving you happiness, fulfillment, or significance, because it has none of those things itself. He says, I cannot tell you to be happy, By means of this world, he tells you, Happy New Year. But that brings us in the third place to the problem. The problem. Verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Two things about this verse, about the problem. First of all, notice the key word. The key word is uh, the one translated by the New American Standard, advantage, or by the ESV, gain. The problem which gives rise to the verdict of verse 2, that all is vanity is contained in the key word in that verse. It is translated, as I said, advantage or gain. Everything a man does in his work brings no gain, no advantage. 
his work is useless, and thus his life is useless and vain. The word used here is another of those words which is used only in Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, but it is used in this book nine times. And the New American Standard at least translates it three different ways. It's translated advantage as here and in Ecclesiastes 5.16, which says, This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. (laughs) Came out of the womb naked. He's going to die no matter how they dress him up, naked, and he's not taking it with him. And so what is all between? What is all this labor? What is all this work? What is all this gain that we get in between coming out of our mother's womb and going into that casket? What is it? Well, Solomon says, no advantage, no gain. It's also translated profit, as in Ecclesiastes 2.11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. It's like running a store for years and years and years and never showing a profit and only going deeper and deeper in debt to the bank. But it's translated Excel, as in Ecclesiastes 2.13. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. True? But under the sun, that's not very important, his point. Let me illustrate uselessness. This no advantage, no gain perspective. (laughs) We ordered a new headboard for my dad's bed online. Of course, for the sake of shipping them easily, such things do not come assembled. Like all those other toys and things you get at Christmas through Amazon and Overstock.com and the other places you're shopping, It comes with some assembly required. In the case of my dad's headboard, it came with complete assembly required. It had to be completely assembly. And for me, with my less than elite level mechanical abilities, this was at least a two-hour job. Now suppose after an hour and a half of that kind of labor, which is not for me fun, (laughs) it's of that kind of hour and a half of back-breaking work, I realized that I had put something together backwards and that there was no way to fix it or undo it without completely destroying the headboard. That would be a little example of uselessness. All the money spent and all the labor expended would have been absolutely meaningless. It would have been vanity. In case you were wondering, that did not happen. But at one point I was afraid that it had. At any rate, thus the preacher says that there is in this life no advantage, no profit, no excelling. Life is vanity and striving after wind. Now all this might appear to lead to the conclusion of the hedonists that we shall eat, drink, uh, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But in verse 3, there is something else and something really Really, really important. Notice the crucial perspective. Look at verse 3 and notice, and if you want to underline it, it's that important, the phrase, under the sun. Under the sun. 
This phrase, again, only appears in Ecclesiastes. It's used 30 times in Ecclesiastes. Think it's important? It contains a unique perspective crucial to understanding the message of this book. Here it is. Everything which the book teaches about life under the sun is only true if your exclusive perspective is under the sun. It's not true everywhere. It's not true for every purpose. It's not true in an ultimate sense. It's only true under the sun. Under the sun. Let me explain. When the wise man says that life is vanity, he is saying that that's the way it looks if you only see from the perspective of under the sun. Take, for example, Ecclesiastes 3, verses 16 to 21. Please turn there. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 16 to 21. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself, concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are, not, they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there's no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity." All go to the same place. All came from the dust. All return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. Now, what he's saying here is that that's the way that look, it looks if you only look at it from the under-the-sun perspective. Without something coming in from the outside, without a word from God outside and Above the sun. We don't know. Man and animals look the same. It looks like they die the same. It looks like everything's the same. It looks like all go to the same place. That's what it looks like under the sun. That's what it looks like if we look at it from the under the sun perspective. Is the wise man saying that there's no difference between the spirit of man and the spirit of beast? No. No. He is saying that under the sun, it looks like that. And if that's the only way you look at things, if that's the only perspective you have, if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in a revelation from God, if you don't believe in any of that, that's what you end up with. You're no different. You have no reason to think you're any different than the beast. That's the way it appears under the sun. Now by using this phrase, he implies that there's another perspective. Another perspective which we need to take into account. But he's also saying uh, that before we search for that perspective, we must frankly face what life looks like under the sun. Why are you telling us all this? Get to the good part. Tell us something else. The wise man says, I'm going to, but you have to stop for a second. You need to stop for a second and realize what things really look like. If you don't have God, if you don't have Christ, if you don't have a revelation from God, this is what they look like. Don't move on too fast. 
Don't think, don't, don't, don't ask for something, uh, a more positive perspective too fast. You've got to face this. You've got to face what under the sun looks like. This is what it looks like. You're no different than a beast. That's what it's like. Don't try to skew it out from under it. Don't be naive. A face that this is what life looks like under the sun. You need to face that. You need to face that. He is saying that we must embrace the uselessness, the vanity, the emptiness, the meaninglessness of life just as it looks and in a sense just as it is under the sun. We must give up the Pollyanna-ish, naive, everything is wonderful perspective of some people who refuse to admit the dark side of life. We must not be human ostriches with our head in the sand and refusing to see the truth about the world. Then, and only then, will we see and feel and need another perspective. A perspective that is absolutely necessary, we now realize. Absolutely necessary, we now realize. If we are to have hope and meaning in our life, under the sun. And that brings us to the proclamation, verses 4 to 11. After these words of introduction, the preacher, having stated the theme of his message, uh, he comes to the four points of his sermon. He tells us why, here, he thinks everything is vanity. First of all, he says in verses 4 to 7, nothing ever changes. Look at verses 4 to 7. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Here's what he's saying. Nothing changes. This reminds me, um, uh, you kids will know this, uh, this reminds me of the circle of life philosophy made famous by the, what movies? The Lion King movies, right? We are supposed to take comfort in the great circle of life. Now, maybe the animals in the Lion King movies can find comfort and fulfillment in such a philosophy, but I am quite sure of this. Examined closely and clearly, it will not provide satisfaction to human beings and it did not provide satisfaction to Solomon. Let me show you why it could not provide such satisfaction. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He has made everything appropriate 
in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. See the text? He has set eternity in their heart. He's given them a glimpse. He's given them a sense that there's something bigger. He's given them a, a desire, a desire for transcendence. He's given them a desire to know what everything's about. They're not animals. But he hasn't given them the wisdom on their own to figure out what it is. He's set eternity in their heart. Eternity in their heart. And this is the problem. And this is why the circle of life philosophy doesn't work for human beings. I want to say two things about this verse. First, the word translated eternity really does mean that. It is literally the Hebrew word, the age, but it means frequently eternity, as it does in Ecclesiastes 3.14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. That's the word eternity. There is nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. And it means eternity in Ecclesiastes 12.5. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road, talking about old people, the almond tree blossoms, white hair. The grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. Ask your parents about that. For man goes to his eternal home. There it is, his eternal home, while mourners go about in the street. So he has placed, he has placed forever in the human heart. The human art and mind has eternity, has foreverness. To use the big theological word, it has transcendence, indelibly etched in it. It cannot be satisfied within this tiny circle of life. It cannot be satisfied with a cycle or repetition in time in this world. It searches, it seeks, it needs Something eternal. It needs something that lasts forever. And thus Solomon finds the endless cycle of this world in which nothing changes, in which everything remains the same, frustrating and unfulfilling. And that actually is his next point. Not only does nothing change, Nothing satisfies, verse 8, Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 8. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. The point is, nothing satisfies. Solomon says, of the world and everything in it, it makes me tired. It is wearisome. There is no rest for my soul in it. It offers me nothing but weariness. It wears me out for nothing. 
But then he puts it a different way. Nothing in the world fills me up. My glasses never full. Nothing I see satisfies me. My eye is never filled with what I see. My ear is never filled with what I hear. Men spend their, men spend their lives wanting to see something new and wanting to hear something new. Remember the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17.21 who spent their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They go here and there. They do this and that. They pursue this teaching or another. But Solomon says nothing satisfies them. And none of it satisfies me. And that brings us to the third complaint of the preacher. Nothing changes. Nothing satisfies. Nothing is new. Verses 9 and 10. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it's new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. Now I know this, these verses raise a lot of questions in my mind, and some small, and I think I want to say trivial sense. There are new things, but, uh, but actually the world can be summed up this way. Same old, same old. The search for something really new, actually different, authentically novel, is useless. People are always the same. Places are not really so different. Sure, we like to see new places, go someplace that's beautiful, travel can be fun, but the novelty wears off. You want to go back again? Nah, not really. We get used to the differences, and after a while, everything just seems the same. People think that if they go far enough, they will find something really new. People think if they retire with enough money to travel, they will be happy. But they aren't. I've been to a lot of places. Didn't do it because I like to travel, but I've been there. They're all pretty much the same. People are pretty much the same. People don't change. Places are about the same. It all gets old. History tends to repeat itself. Empires enlarge and contract. Fortunes rise and fall. People keep trying to conquer Afghanistan and failing. And the wise man tells us that it is just the endless cycle of history. Just the endless cycle of history repeating itself. But finally it says, nothing is remembered. Now, of course, we remember some things. Caesar... Julius Caesar, we, we know something about him, I guess. Uh, but quick quiz, name four of your eight great-grandparents. How many people can do it? Cindy can. I can name one, Debbie can. I can't get to four, the first names. Most of us can't name four of our eight great-grandparents. And this illustrates the point of verse 11. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. We do not remember our own forebears. Okay, so Cindy's got great-grandparents back there. 
How about great-great-grandparents? Then your great-great-great-grandparents, huh? Huh? <laughs> we do not remember our own forebears. We certainly remember even less of other things that happened. But we buzz around doing all our very important stuff that we do, that's so important, right? All our very important stuff that we do. Yet we never realize that all of that, what seems very important to us, will soon be forgotten as well. We have forgotten the past. The grandchildren of our grandchildren will not remember us. What is the moral? Well, it seems to be this. Psalm 49, 12. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that perish. Happy New Year. So what is the moral of the story? Should you make the New Year's resolution to go out and shoot yourself? <laughs> well, that's what it seems to be leading to, right? But before you do that, and relating even to our last point, here's the great thing. Your grandchildren, or the grandchildren of your grandchildren, may not remember your name, but God remembers. God remembers. And this is why we have to remind ourselves now that what the preacher says is controlled and qualified by the phrase, under the sun. This is what things are like. This is the way things are. Under the sun. But we must get out of our under the sun box if we are to see how we should really look at things. And if we are to find something that is not a disappearing vapor, something that is not striving after wind, if we are to find the meaning, the purpose, the fulfillment, and the happiness that we seek, we need a word from outside. It's from outside this under the sun box in which we live. The preacher's main points are that we need such a word and that such a perspective is available. And so, let me say several things by way of application before I'm done. Here is a compelling argument for Christ and Christianity. Ecclesiastes, the whole book is from one perspective, a powerful apologetic or defense of the faith. You think of it that way? It's an argument for Christ and Christianity. One interpreter has seen this clearly. Koheleth, that's the Hebrew word for preacher. Koheleth writes from concealed premises, and his book is in reality a major work of apologetic. His book is in fact a critique of secularism and secularized religion. You see, the preacher speaks to the secularism uh, of our age, and he speaks with a compelling force. With Ecclesiastes, we should say to our secular age, you want a world without God and without divine revelation? Here is the world you get with it. You get a world that means nothing. You get a world that is vanity and striving after wind. You get a world in which nothing you do ultimately matters. You get a world which is meaningless. That is what you get with your secularism. You like it? That's the message of Ecclesiastes for our age. And you cannot live with that. You cannot live with that. 
no matter what you pretend, you can't live with it. And here's why. God has placed eternity in your heart. You have a forever hole inside of you. You need transcendence. But you can never have it in this world without a word from outside and without divine revelation. Here's what you get with your secularism and your naturalism. Here's where you end up. Here's what you get. You get despair. Big, black, dirty despair. And so we have here in the book of Ecclesiastes an apologetic, a defense of Christ and Christianity. Because Christ is the one who came down from above the sun, from heaven, with a word from God. But here's a clear exposure of all the false fulfillments and all the false sources of happiness offered by our age. Now, as I have just said, people cannot live in the world that they've invented, a world without God and without revelation, a world that is black and pitiless and hopeless and meaningless as the one which secularism gives them. The popular movies and novels, however, are constantly offering us substitutes. Our own hearts keep offering us these substitutes, which they say they, th- they say will fill the forever hole in our hearts. I couldn't find the quote this morning, and I spent too much time looking at it. I read it, I know, yesterday from one of the authors I read. But it, but it says something like this, and it's, it's really true. And, you know, uh, secularism was like this book with a beautiful cover, and it looks so attractive and so exciting. You open the page, and there is nothing in it. All the pages are blank. It's true. So, a, so there is this forever hole in our hearts that can't be filled by all the false gods offered us by the world. Some of these false gods are obviously bad, like free sex and pornography. Some of these false gods are a little silly, like space, the final frontier. Seriously, I think the attraction of sci-fi for some people is that it seems to offer, seems to offer a kind of transcendence. Some of these false gods seem moral and good. What are all the good family movies teach you? Oh, satisfaction comes from the family. Having a family. That'll give you fulfillment. Yes, or, or it's love and romance. Or love and romance is the fulfillment that a lot of movies offer us to fulfill the forever whole in our hearts. But whether bad, silly, or seemingly good, none of them give what they offer. Free sex and pornography ruin people. Space is still inside the box of the universe. It really offers no transcendence. Love, romance, and family all disappoint because all of those wonderful people are still sinners like we are. Love, romance, and family all disappoint because of our own sins and failings and the sins and unfaithfulness of those we love. They all disappoint, even ruin us, even ruin us if we look for transcendence in them. But all such faults and worldly idols, Christ has a warning. He says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
And if you seek to fill your soul with what is in this world, you will lose it. But then, here is faithful direction for how to have a happy and fulfilling life in this new year. And every new year, you need to make the goal of your life God and His Son. Christ came down from heaven. He came from above the sun with a message from God that men might have life and have it abundantly. Here is the gospel message. There is a God above the sun and outside the under the sun box who has a purpose, who has sent his son to achieve that purpose from outside the world. In that God and his son, we can find the meaning, the purpose, and the fulfillment and the happiness that we seek. And thus the Christ of God taught us in Matthew 6.33. You want to be happy? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So let me seriously and urgently call you to dedicate your life in the coming year to the service of God and his son. And I'm not ashamed to say it this way either. I call you to do that Because I want you to be happy. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to have a fulfilling new year? Do you want to have a happy new year? Then, by all means, by all means, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's the only way to be happy. See, what are you preaching to us about how to be happy? If sound like Joel Osteen, well, I'm sorry, but the text tells me that I can do this, right? I I mean, what's the whole problem? The book of Ecclesiastes. Nothing means anything. Well, you want something to mean something? Then you need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You need to live for something outside the box. You need to live for something over the sun. So let me seriously and urgently call you to dedicate your life in the coming year to the service of God and his son because because I want you to be happy. I want you to have a happy new year. Have you never given your life and heart to God and His Son? To do this, you must begin by repenting of your sins and entrusting yourself to the saving work of God's Son. And this means you must stop making idols of all sorts of things in this world. You must stop serving these idols. You must turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what you have to do. If you've never done that, And you want to be happy, you want to have a life that means something, you want to live for something that means something, well, you have to give your your heart and life to Jesus Christ by repentance toward God and faith towards him. Are you a Christian who in the past has given your heart and life to Christ but are now struggling to find satisfaction and, and you're beginning to lose meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life? What's going wrong? This is what's going wrong. You have started to believe lies and live for idols that can't satisfy you. You need to rethink yourself. You need to go back to God and say, I see now. I see it now. I'm not seeking first your kingdom. Oh, I'm, I'm, giving, I'm tipping my hat. I'm getting to church sometimes. No. You have to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So, you've lost your way. You must find your way back to a life of service to God and His Son. You must once more seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And here is a helpful reminder. 
about how to find real meaning in the good things God gives you in this life. We look forward to Christmas, but a lot of times it's not quite what we wanted or expected, right? <clears throat> now, I, I was looking for an opportunity to get back with your wife, Blake, yesterday at the health park because I said something that I then regretted, but she was busy talking to other people. So you can pass on my apologies to her and tell her what I'm about to say, okay? What I'm about to say is this. <clears throat> I, what I said to her was, uh, we enjoy the holidays, sure, but you know, having 15 grandchildren, 13 and under in your house is not easy. <laughs> and there are parts of that I really don't enjoy. And that's what I said to Nikki. But then, then I thought to myself, yeah, that's not really fair to me or fair to my grandchildren. And, and so let me say that, you know, one of the best things in life, this is what I want you to tell Nikki, is getting a hug from one of my granddaughters, though if it's Molly Beth, it's going to last three seconds and she's wanting to go, go play. But others of them hang around a little bit longer. So I, I love hugs and stuff from my 11 granddaughters. That's really great stuff, you know. But if I tried to find ultimate meaning in life from that, <clears throat> it'd all go away. Don't you see? So don't read me as teaching some sort of asceticism in this message. That is, you may think I'm saying that there's nothing good to experience in this life. We must renounce all pleasure and all temporal blessing and serve God like some hermit or monk in the wilderness. That is not what I am saying. What did Matthew 6.33 say? All these things will be added to you. Now I know what that means in its context, but I think this is an appropriate application and accommodation. Do you want to find the true pleasure in the gifts God gives you? Do you want to find true pleasure in your wife, your family, your children, or your grandchildren? Then you've got to connect them all to God and His Son. You've got to find a way of connecting them all to God and His Son. You've got to take them all as gifts from God. You've got to take them all as ways of serving God in and through all of them. Ask constantly how you can serve God in relation to your wife, your children, your friends, or the other good things in your life that God has given you. How can you serve God with them? Seek first the kingdom of God in all of these things. And do it, please, brother, please, sister, please, friend. Do it because it will make you happy. That will give you fulfillment. Now, your happiness isn't the ultimate good in the universe. God's glory is. I know that. But, but the point is, the Bible appeals you to you to live for your own highest and best and enlightened self-interest. And, 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 and how could I call myself your friend if I didn't want you to be happy? I do want you to be happy. And that's why you have to do this. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That will fill the forever whole in your heart. That will let me say to myself, if you do this, that my wish has been fulfilled, my wish for you, when I say, Happy New Year. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you. We thank you for the teaching of your word. Even out of its thunder clouds of darkness, your light gleams through to do us good. And Lord, we come to you. We ask you. We entreat you. 
that you would grant to everyone here, whether for the first time in repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether it is uh, to return to you after straying from what we know better than, you would grant that your, your servants would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that all these things, all your good gifts, might be properly enjoyed, might be the kind of source of happiness that they can be, but only enjoyed in relation to you and your son. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.